Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, we talk with Ben Fleury-Steiner and Jamie Longazell, authors of the new book, The Pains of Mass Imprisonment. Ben Fleury-Steiner is an associate professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware, where he teaches and studies inequality, mass imprisonment, and the death penalty. His recent books include Jury Stories of Death, How America's Death Penalty Invests in Inequality, and Dying Inside, the HIV-AIDS Ward at Limestone Prison. Jamie Longazell is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Social Work at the University of Dayton. He teaches and conducts research in the areas of crime and punishment, law and inequality, and immigration. Their new book, The Pains of Mass Imprisonment, describes American punishment, especially of people of color. To illustrate the magnitude of this issue, Jamie and Ben focus on the voices and lived experiences of individuals, instead of simply reporting objective statistics and trends. Welcome to the Office Hours podcast. And we're here today to talk about your new book, The Pains of Mass Imprisonment. So just to get started, why don't um, you guys describe sort of the major goal you had in, ri- in writing this book and, and what motivated you to start this project? We hoped that it would be a book that would be read by both students and scholars. And thinking about students as instructors of courses on, on issues of crime and punishment, we've repeatedly found that many students come in to classes with deeply held beliefs about crime, right? This this notion of you do the crime, you do the time is kind of the mantra. And this is a individualistic approach that's, that's pretty inconsistent with what uh, C. Wright Mills has famously called the sociological imagination, seeing individual troubles as being situated in a in a broader context. And, and so we want to kind of expand these imaginations as we as we teach. And so so we really, as we were working on the book, focused on taking steps to contextualize the experience of prisoners in the contemporary era as much as we possibly could. Uh, noting that, for example, there's more than two million people behind bars and most of them are people of color, right? That's such an important context for understanding the prison today. And and so um, what we tried to do is tell the stories of actual prisoners who are importantly situated in this context, with situated being the operative word there, uh, not just people who are on an isolated island that are, are kind of depicted as rational actors who are suffering the consequences for the decision. So, so we saw it as being an important teaching tool. Uh, we also thought it would be good for scholars too. I think, I think the issue here kind of goes in the other direction as, as scholars uh, many scholars are aware of this problem, but the tendency sometimes is to harp on numbers, right? And then we sometimes forget that each one of those numbers represents a human being. And so by telling the stories of, of people who are behind bars, by sort of giving voice to the, to the voiceless, we uh, think that the book may, makes an important contribution to scholarship by exposing mass incarceration in the U.S. as this, this humanitarian crisis on a, on a grand scale. And uh, you've alluded to this a bit, but what is, how would you describe the methodological approach you took in terms of the data and the text and the narratives that you present? And what kind of led you to, to, to choose that as your, as your method? Yeah, 
so this is um, Ben jumping in here. Um, uh, you know, this series was a wonderful opportunity because, you know, they really encouraged us to present, you know, new ideas and, um, and the, and the, in the material, the empirical material in the U S is so rich on, uh, mass imprisonment in, in so many ways. But as, as Jamie alluded, you know, there isn't this humanitarian kind of focus, which is much more common in European criminology. Um, Phil, Phil, uh, Scratton, from uh, Queens College has just done remarkable work in bringing in contextualized stories of prisoners in Irish prisons, for example, to show what this actually means uh, at the institutional level. So, um, you know, methodologically, I really developed this myself in, in my book, Dying Inside, which is actually a book that focuses on one class action lawsuit um, but when you look at what a class action lawsuit is, you realize there's thousands of pages of documents and records. And, uh, so it's, uh, some, some have called this, I believe Michael Burroway, uh, has called this, you know, the, the intensive case method. You're looking at archival materials in a way to understand institutional conditions beyond just sort of isolated incidents you know there's put it this way there's no dearth of secondary material for us to do these really intensive case studies so i don't think methodologically what we're doing here is anything particularly new or or groundbreaking at the same time it was surprising to us that that social suffering with some exception really isn't uh, an object of a study in in american criminology where mass imprisonment reigns supreme. In terms of your theoretical approach, how did you frame your work, um, keeping in mind, too, that of this broad audience of students and the public and scholars? Well, I think it's, I think it's situated in, in the conflict tradition of, of sociology, and, and here the, the big idea as, as many listeners probably know, is that groups are, are vying for scarce resources and those in power are prone to assuring, number one, that they keep what they have, and number two, uh, to assuring that subordinate groups remain subordinated. And, and so we kind of come out of this tradition, and I think under the, the umbrella of that tradition, there is a strand of, of uh, pretty recent criminological research that uh, kind of has us thinking about mass incarceration as a tool that the powerful are are wielding in order to accomplish these kinds of ends that that conflict theorists have long have long talked about uh the most prominent example is probably michelle alexander's recent book the new jim crow which which argues that mass incarceration is 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 merely the next iteration of of racial oppression in the united states from slavery to jim crow to to what we have today in our in our prison systems and so so we 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 come out of that tradition and and given our 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 own studies i mean given through the work we did prying through these class action lawsuits as well as as previous work we've done on other topics we we really concur with with this with this approach right with these studies that are are kind of making this suggestion but at the same time, I think keeping our, our audience in mind, our, our goal wasn't necessarily to, to sort of split theoretical hairs, right? We didn't want to kind of uh, make, make a contribution that was merely 
theoretical. And, and, and so we wrote the book in a way that, that, you know, we were hoping to kind of bring these stories to life. And so, so the end result is that someone who reads the book may not walk away thinking, wow, what an unbelievable contribution to conflict theory that was, uh, but rather thinking, wow, prisoners are, are treated horribly in, in, in this contemporary era. And there's something that we, this is something we ought to do something about. And, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, there's, there's not that big of a difference between these two approaches. You know, the conflict tradition is, is a tradition that has long been, been kind of focused on, on achieving social justice, right? It's not just scholarship for the sake of scholarship, but scholarship for the sake of creating real meaningful change. And so we kind of had those, those dual considerations in our, in our, in the back of our minds at all times, kind of the theoretical approach, but, but making that theoretical kick also be, be accessible to, to all of our readers. The structure of the book is something I found really great and interesting. And for our readers who are perhaps not totally familiar with sort of the history of studying prisons within criminology and sociology, you use the structure of the pains of imprisonment and you adapt the structure, you update it and adapt it for your chapters. So why don't you just kind of quickly tell our our listeners uh, what the pains of imprisonment are and then how you went ahead and updated these for the current era of mass imprisonment. Well, I mean, first, one thing to say is, you know, Gresham Sykes, that the book, The Society of Captives, is, you know, uh, for any of the folks listening who teach prisons or punishment, you know, or for that matter, Intro to Sociology, are, are pretty aware of this classic work. And, and Sykes, you know, was really a brilliant sociologist with his other publications, accounts, and thinking about narrative and, and the way that people experience or just come to justifications in the context of deviance, and in this case, in the context of institutions. So, so for Sykes, um, in his long efforts observing at the New Jersey Maximum uh, Security Prison in the 50s, this chapter, The Pains of Imprisonment, uh, you know, is really seminal and, and quite clever um, for one, one of the first things he, he says is, uh, the conclusion is, prison is painful. Right. And so that's really, to say the least, now the, our prison population is something like eight, eight times what it was when Sykes was studying it. So for Sykes, the, you know, the, the classic uh, really is the first one, the deprivation of liberty. And here the prisoner is confronted with limited mobility and an inability to keep in contact with family and friends. And we know how, you know, rich that observation is for this huge literature on you know the so-called collateral consequences of imprisonment, Sykes observing and very fundamentally that this is taking away liberty. So for us, in, in thinking about that uh, more critically, in terms of what prisons today, which are far more overcrowded, that the deprivation of liberty, while absolutely relevant in so many different ways, we believe to really understand the the present condition it was it was more important to focus on on the institutional pains if you will and so for us rather than the deprivation of liberty it was containment itself or prisoners are treated as objects in a warehouse basic human needs healthcare contact with friends and relatives become secondary to incapacitation so you can kind of see the difference um, in our conception, because we're we're really coming from from a perspective of, of in the institution. The next one for Sykes was the deprivation of goods and services. 
And, and you notice in the language, the self-image of the prisoner is harmed by conditions of forced poverty. So once again, you know, he's, he's very much focusing in on, on the, uh, the self in the context of the broader harm done by the prison, where in a capitalist society, to be poor, obviously, is to be marginalized. But for us, more accurate beyond the individual prisoner was to, to really call this pain today exploitation. And here prisoners are used for the financial benefit of their captors. This includes forced prison labor, change, uh, charging exuberant, exuberant rates for basic goods and services, and the commodification of prisoners. And now I'll just quickly go through the others. The deprivation of heterosexual relationships, one of the more controversial pains, uh, a sign of the times, perhaps, because it was very heteronormative in, in the way he was presenting it. And for us, you know, it was, a, it was a unique opportunity to talk about what has now been shown to be, amongst black women, the fastest growing population in our prisons and jails um, are, are, are women of color and, and just the growth of women behind bars in general. So we took it as an opportunity to focus on women prisoners and particularly coercion is what we focus in on there. The deprivation of autonomy, guards free prisoners like children, so the sort of infantilization um, that, that clearly still goes on. But for us and what, what we've seen in this, this systematizing of prisons under these enormous mass, you know, mass imprisonment regimes, the enormous focus on using segregation and solitary confinement or what we call isolation to the extent of that was a more suitable way to capture the, the far-reaching pain of mass imprisonment. And then finally, the deprivation of security. And, and here Sykes is talking about still very relevant threats particular prisoners have by other prisoners. Seeing class action lawsuits involving multiple prisons and histories of this in recent years the deprivation of security is not so much prisoner on prisoner as, as a dominant pain, but the the guards and the regime of the guards as being brutalizers, as, as res resorting to remarkable strategies uh, that are aimed at brutalizing prisoners, whether it's prisons all over the country using very powerful toxic gases that lead to burns of prisoners' flesh or restraining chairs, or as we focus on most prominently, and something we see uh, increasingly in, the, in this age, this post-9-11 age, these the special operation teams, correctional emergency response teams, there's so many different acronyms for them. The tactics of these teams in stripping prisoners whole cell blocks naked um, and then subjecting them to to beatings and, and physical torture um, that we that we want to kind of believe is Guantanamo and, you know, the rest of our mass, our carceral footprint with our secret prisons all over the world, you know, now in the, in the name of the war on terror. But the more we delved into uh, it, the more we realized that, you know, not only are these tactics being used on prisoners in domestic American prisons, but in fact, um, in many ways, these these tactics had been honed in American prisons and then exported abroad. And many of the uh, officers at Abu Ghraib were corrections officers in their in their when they were not serving in the guard. 
it's just exploded all over the U.S. and the world since 9-11. Now, just to kind of illustrate these updated pains of mass imprisonment for our readers, I was hoping we, you could give us a couple specific examples of the sort of material that you present to illustrate these pains of mass imprisonment. I was I was really kind of uh, struck in, in a in a emotional kind of way, almost working on on the chapter that we call isolation, which is a, a pickup on on Sykes's notion of the deprivation of autonomy. And for Sykes, the deprivation of autonomy entails, you know, constantly being told what to do and and also being exposed to uh, arbitrary decisions, or at least never never being given given a sufficient explanation for why decisions are made and. Uh, when we think about this deprivation in, in the current era, as, as Ben just described, you know, the vocabulary that is required is, is, is one that's very different, you know. So words like deprivation, I, I think, don't quite do justice of, of what's going on here. We need these, 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 uh, more descriptive terms like coercion, isolation, and such. So, so we thought, we thought of, 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 updating the deprivation of autonomy by, by focusing on isolation and nowhere is isolation more evident in, in the contemporary prison regime than in uh, solitary confinement. And, and so in that chapter, we tell the story of a, a guy by the name of George Ruiz, who's the, the lead plaintiff in a, a massive class action lawsuit. And, and so I think I'm just going to actually read a, a short passage from, from Ruiz's story. At 69 years old, many would consider George Ruiz an old man. For more than half his adult life, a full 28 years, he's been confined in an 8 by 10 foot windowless cell for about 23 hours a day. The cell is made of poured gray concrete and contains only a concrete bed, two concrete slabs that serve as a desk and a stool, a sink and a toilet. The door of his cell is solid steel, has a few small holes that allow a partial view into the hallway, and a food slot through which a guard slides him substandard meals twice a day. A resident of California Bay State Prison, since it was a, uh, California's Pelican Bay State Prison, sorry, since it opened in 1989, George has endured nearly three full decades of extremely limited recreation, almost no contact with loved ones, and constant surveillance and control. Under court order, the prison must provide people detained in the security housing unit or the SHU with five hours of recreation per week. As such, barring staff shortages, inclement weather, or arbitrary staff decisions, George is occasionally released from his proverbial cage into what is referred to as a dog run, a cement yard that is still unequivocally small, about the size of three cells, but represents a rare, opp rare opportunity for at least some mobility. The partial opening in the sky in the dog run is the only means by which George ever sees the light of day, and that opening also happens to permit rain to pour into the exercise pen, causing water to frequently pull onto the floor and mildew or mold to form on the walls. Prior to a 2011 hunger strike, prison officials did not permit the use of any exercise equipment. After that hunger, strunk, hunger strike, they were, they were provided with a measly handball. What's perhaps most painful about all of George's experience is the solitude he's forced to endure. He must eat, sleep, and recreate alone. Normal human conversation is impossible. The only way he can communicate with other prisoners is by shouting loud enough for the prisoner to the next cell to hear. That is, if a guard does not punish him for doing so, as this is technically a rule violation. Outside of pinky shakes with guards, which prisoners accomplish by sticking their pinky finger through one of the tiny holes in the cell door, physical contact with another human being almost never occurs. One of George's fellow shoe prisoners has gone 13 years without even shaking another person's hand. Another has not hugged his now adult daughter since she was in preschool nearly two decades ago. So, you know, I think in this, this um, 
really disturbing account. We can we can really see autonomy, the deprivation of autonomy being taken to a whole other level, right? It's not that George is, is being told what to do, but he literally can't do a thing. I mean, I mean it's 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 complete and, and total control wherein all sensory stimulation is is being removed from this man's life, not just for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but in this case for several decades. Uh, and the kicker about this is that these decisions, as, as Sykes pointed out long ago, these decisions are often arbitrary. So, so the people that end up in solitary confinement today uh, are importantly not being sentenced to this in, in a court of law, but, but are kind of being sentenced to this prison within a prison. So, so they're being uh, put in the hole for, for um, um, cases that, you know, the, the, uh, the understanding is often that these are, these are the people who are the worst of the worst, that they, they pose a major threat. But that's, that's not always true. And in fact, George Ruiz had no horrible violations while he, while he was in prison. For the long time he was incarcerated, he's had just a few very minor, minor violations. Uh, he's now in the hole because he, uh, his name allegedly appeared on a list of members of the Mexican mafia. And there were some questions that guards had about a drawing that, that Ruiz had once hung on his wall. And so he's, he's, he's now in the hole and, and being forced to, to stay there unless he, he debriefs, uh, as they call it, basically meaning that he, 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 uh, gives prison guards more information, snitches, in, in other words, gives more information. And, and that, in many circumstances, is often more dangerous because it can put family members and such at, at, at jeopardy. And so, 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 again, jumping off of Sykes's uh, notion of autonomy, we see, we see isolation being really, really severe. And I think hearing Ruiz's story captured that, that quite well for the, the, the context of mass imprisonment. Right. I was struck by your book, and this is great to have some sort of rich examples of, of what it's like for people who haven't yet read it, but it's very different than the sort of textbook style criminology text that we that we see on the market. I'm curious, and in taking this, this approach that you did, if you had any kind of pushback in getting your work out with uh, publishing or with editors, um, and sort of how you see your approach as, as being beneficial in, in teaching this and, and getting this message out. This for us was was an was a terrific opportunity to create a a short text this framing 21st century issues and they're meant to uh, provoke discussion and dialogue in ways that you know are challenging in in what we've done here I believe this adds such a important uh, contribution to teaching about prisons deviance um you know even uh an intro to social class where if you want to get at the difference between functionalism and uh, conflict perspective, which is taught routinely, you know, the book really brings that to life. But but more to help folks understand, young folks understand, undergrads, the, this involves human beings on a wide scale. On a, it's not just a lot of people locked up. It's a lot of people locked up and subjected to what we believe is a, a new, extraordinarily brutal regime of incapacitation or what, I mean, Jonathan Simon had called the human waste dump prison. I think in, in a lot of ways that sounds hyperbolic, but when you understand the, the anatomy of the oppression uh, that we delineate in the book through the real stories that I think, again, my students and I've taught sections of the book have been very receptive to because it allow it allows them to react in a way they can see this is about human beings they can 
if they say comments like, oh, I thought this was only Abu Ghraib. I thought this was only um, uh, in the South or, you know, uh, and, and it's eye opening to them and they want to understand. Yeah. I mean, with this book, the goal is not only to get them to be able to engage with humanitarian crisis that just has gone on for decades and continues to go on unabated, that you can do something about it, that there are organizations doing things. In fact, you would, we would not even know about this information if it wasn't for these organizations. And Jamie, did you have anything you wanted to add to that in terms of the benefits of, of the approach to this book and, and how it kind of came through the publication process? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think, you know, as, as Ben was saying, the, the, the editors were, were super receptive to this. You know, I, I, think, I think that um, even, though, even though it might not look like a, a so-called traditional text or, or even though this approach may not necessarily be an approach that, that often appears in, in some of the, the, the mainstream journals of, of the disciplines, I, I still think that there's kind of this, this, there's a tradition here, right? There's, there's, there's a, a history of this approach that is, as Ben mentioned in the beginning comes, comes from, you know, in, in part the uh, tradition of feminist scholarship, this idea of, of thinking about lived experience and giving voice to the voiceless. Um, there's a, a critical legal studies tradition of, of kind of, uh, emphasizing that in order to get beyond the the formalities of law, we we need to to tell stories, right? We need to to kind of humanize uh, the actors in these situations in order to to get us past uh, um, formalities in in law or 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 statistics or or whatever whatever the 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 sort of abstraction actually is, and and so so. Yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of a no-brainer for us to to take this approach because the the question is how else do we get this stuff out? You know, the the, the vignettes that we we read and and the others that are in the book are are um, um, almost the only way that you can capture this. I mean, we can talk about about human rights violations in a generic way, or we can we can talk about uh, difficult conditions, but until you you know, put a name on, on, on a person experiencing this. And until you kind of tell their story, I don't think it really affects people in, in the way that it could. And so, so I think, you know, from a, a scholarship point of view, it, it has that, that, that tradition is, is so important because it, it, it brings in a whole other set of sociological concerns that are, are often silent. And, and, and then at the same point, from, from an activism point of view, uh, you know, we're doing what we can, but really only, as has been pointed out, following in the footsteps of these these magnificent organizations who have been been really fighting hard to to expose some of this stuff that that's going on in in the most uh, isolated and most sealed institutions that we have, which is the prison. Right? It, it's really hard to to expose what goes on behind those walls, and and so we we thought that by by kind of integrating these these traditions of of uh, critical scholarship with with that that activist agenda that it, it would work well and and uh, I think I think it's hope it's it's especially going to work well amongst students you know as Ben was saying really kind of eye opening uh, really opening up their eyes to that and and as I've I've taught it in in, in you know in a preliminary kind of way as Ben was saying it's it's managed to turn some students on to get them thinking about 
oh, well, what other kind of, of brutalities might be going on here? Hey, I'm concerned with this issue of, of food allergies. How does this play out in prison? Or, or um, what other examples of, are there of, of female prisoners being, being subject to, to, to these pains that you described? So all of these, these questions, I think, emerge once, once it, it, you humanize it and, and get people interested. So, so we're hoping that, that it's, it's successful in that respect. Great. Well, well, we'll be sure to post a link on the website here where people can get the podcast to the book. It is called The Pains of Mass Imprisonment. And those are all the questions I had today. Thank you so much for uh, sharing some of the background and bringing some parts of the book to light for our readers. I'm sure they'll be interested in following up. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having us on. It was, it was a pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.